morning and we confess that you are our anchor and it is your love that anchors us to your word and to your glory and your majesty. We thank you, Father, for this time that we can gather. In your name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, and welcome to Providence Community Church. This morning, my name is David, and it is good to be with you this morning. Um, for those that have children, if you haven't been with us before, we are a family-integrated church, so feel free to have your children make noise, scream, shout, kick, fuss, whatever they want to do. Uh, maybe it'll cover up my voice. But let us now rejoice together as we continue the worship of our Lord Jesus in the proclamation of his holy word. So now, following the service today, here in the sanctuary, we will be uh, assembling for a congregational meeting. Uh, we invite and strongly encourage those who consider Providence to be their church home and fellowship to attend. One of the things, and among other things, we will address at this meeting is the church finances. So the elders here have worked to prioritize and will present to you the intentions of this church to manage or steward the money given to the kingdom in the work that will follow. So we share in the command from scripture given by God to lay up treasures in heaven. So this morning, we will be taking this occasion to consider well the topic of money or the topic of treasure, if you will. So please open your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. While you're doing that, here in the Gospel, according to Matthew, we have recorded for us the longest unbroken teaching from the Lord Jesus in the entire Bible. Okay, so the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount. So let's give some quick context here. The Gospel, according to Matthew, is the account of the life and ministry of Jesus. But what's more is Matthew is showing us that Jesus Christ is the culmination of the entire story of the Hebrew Bible, right? So from Genesis, and quick quiz out of the gate for the kids, what's the last book of the Old Testament, kids? Anybody? Revelation, Revelation that's the whole Bible. How about the Old Testament? Malachi. Malachi, right? Good job. So from Genesis to Malachi, Matthew shows us throughout his gospel that the coming <laughs> or the advent of Jesus is the coming of the true Israel, right? And that the coming of Jesus is the coming of Israel's God, right? Jesus, the true temple, the true lamb, the true ark, the true king, etc. Now Emmanuel, God with us. And so we shouldn't be surprised here at this section of Matthew when Jesus does what? What does Jesus do? Well, he ascends the mountain, he sits down as a king, and gives his law to his people, Amen. right? So this, this, these are echoes of what? Moses and Mount Sinai. But now for this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, here in chapter 6, verses 19 through 24, we'll read, we see the teaching of Jesus that embodies the wisdom of Solomon's Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, teaching us how to live wise, wisely. <laughs> so this is life under the sun, life in a fallen world. This is not isolated moral teaching. Right? This isn't a random compilation of information found here. God is purposeful in his instruction for us with money. Right? It is primarily concerned with the kingdom of God, 
what his people are to understand about his kingdom, how we are to live, how we are to act in his kingdom. So again, not isolated moral teaching here in Matthew, but absolutely useful. So look with me at Matthew 6.19, and we will read through verse 24. Stand with me as we read. This is the word of the living God. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. May God increase our faith in the hearing of his holy and inerrant word. You may be seated. Let's ask the Lord for help. Father, this morning we empty ourselves. Lord, empty us as we are vessels. Fill us as we look to your perfect law, your law and your commands, your precepts, and your righteousness, your goodness, Lord, that comes forth from your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that we would consider money. We pray, Lord, that we would not despise your teaching, Lord, but that we would be conformed to how you would have us understand it, to the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ, in the things and ways of your kingdom. We ask this now in his name. Amen. So this morning, we'll approach this text, the teaching of Jesus in three parts. First, verses 19 through 21 and 24. We have a warning given to us not to lay up perishable treasures, of being mastered by treasures, of putting our hearts in earthly treasures. So we'll ask, well, why not? What does that mean? In verses 22 and 23, we'll see how it is, it is that we can know if we are ensnared by the mastery of money. If treasure can, in fact, enslave us, how do we see our chains? How do we know if we are enslaved to money? Jesus gives us a window into our own hearts that will help us here. And in verse 20, Jesus doesn't just give us something to avoid, but also something to do, namely to lay up treasures in heaven. So our final question is simply, how do we do that? How do we lay up treasures in heaven? So Jesus begins by giving us a warning to not lay up treasures on earth or to be mastered by money or to put our things, our hearts in things that will not last. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So he warns us that earthly treasure is fleeting, vulnerable, untrustworthy, not eternal, perishable, and it doesn't last. The problem with putting your heart, your hope, in earthly treasures is that they are radically vulnerable. They're not solid. You can't depend on them for anything in the absolute sense. So revisiting why the context of Matthew's gospel 
as the complete embodiment, as Jesus as the one true Israel? Well, here Jesus and his kingdom has particular reflection in the book of Ecclesiastes and Solomon's writings in, in the Proverbs. So you probably know this verse, but you probably don't know where it is, don't know where it is. So in the book of Ecclesiastes, in chapter 3, verse 11, the author or the preacher tells us that God has set eternity in the hearts of man. So God has set eternity in the hearts of man. So Solomon is writing and giving us insight here and giving us wise instruction of life under the sun, life in a fallen world. He says things like, well, what is to be gained from withholding no pleasure? What if I was to go out and get all the money, right, all the gold and silver and all the investments and money in your accounts and Bitcoin and stocks, et cetera, et cetera, and fill your heart with every desire, right? Every desire and self-indulgence that your eye could lay, can see, that can be seen, you can take in. It's sex, it's food, it's material possessions, right? Will these things satisfy? And the answer in Ecclesiastes is no. They will not. Right? Solomon writes, Behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So why are we not satisfied with how we spend our time? Why are we not satisfied with how we spend our energy and our money? Why is that? Why? It's because God has set eternity in your hearts. Right? It's why Jesus teaches us here not to store up earthly treasures, because they're vulnerable. They're not lasting. We, on the other hand, were made, our hearts were made, and by heart, I mean how the Bible defines it. So let's get that clear. We're not talking about hallmark here. When calls the heart. This is, the word heart here means the seat or the place of our longings, our deepest desires, our most deep motivations, why we do what we do, all right? That's the seat of your longing. So our hearts were made to find satisfaction in eternal things, not temporal things, all right? And ultimately, we're to find satisfaction in the only absolutely eternal thing, the fountainhead of all things, God himself. Right? This is the gospel, right? This is the same idea in 1 Peter 3.18. It's, it's laid out for us that the whole gospel is like this. It says that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust. So we have penal, substitutionary atonement, the righteous for the unrighteous, right? That what? How is it finished? That we, he might bring us to God. He might, Christ might bring us to God. The whole end of the gospel isn't just to forgive us our sins. That's great. That was the means to a bigger end. Jesus, our advocate, the one true lamb who would bear all of our sin, did not do so merely to right our wrongs, to erase the stain of sin upon our lives, to free us from the bondage of this world. There's a greater, bigger end here. All right? The cross conquered death. The cross conquered the grave. Do you see? It's about eternity. Christ purchased you who were once perishable, but now imperishable. All right? Christ purchased you who had no future, now with an everlasting inheritance. 
Christ purchased you, a vulnerable sinner, to bring you to God. God is the point. So here's what the gospel gets us. It's not only cleansing. Cleansing's good. We need the cleansing of our sins. But cleansing for a purpose, namely to bring humanity to the thing that God set in our hearts as our deepest longing. It's the fountain who was and is and is to come, God himself. That is why it is so important to understand what Jesus is doing here in his teaching about money. The reason he grounds his warning against trusting in wealth and created earthly treasures is because they are not eternal. Right? They're not eternal. They are not the thing our hearts were made to latch onto for our satisfaction. And we know this because we are basically convinced most of the time that they are made to satisfy us. Right? If we really were honest with ourselves, if we really sat back and we thought, thought about it, like what do we think about money? What do we think about how we spend our money? Right? Search me, O oh God, know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. If we dissected our thoughts, I think most of the time we are convinced that what money affords us here on earth is stable and that it's permanent, right? Money and the things money can get, right? They all have a strong illusion of permanence, of strength, of durability. They all have an illusion of being able to grant us contentment, all right? So this is the illusion. And <clears throat> this is a little difficult spot to be in because all of us handle money differently, right? Without naming things and, because I don't know your heart, I don't see your checkbooks. But say you spend your money on X, right? Fill in the blank. Or you think you deserve to have something because fill in the blank. Or I just need this for myself, so you spend fill in the blank. You pour your treasure into fill in the blank. Pour your treasure into fill in the blank. This is no secret. Look at your bank statement, your credit card statement. It will surely shed some light. And so you don't mind parting with our money in these ways. Why? Because we are convinced it yields stability. We're tempted to believe that it will bring us contentment, and then we are tempted for more. Don't you ever think that? Don't you ever find yourself thinking, well, if I had money like that guy, right? Maybe not Elon Musk. That's probably out of reach for most of us. But maybe if I had money like my uncle, or maybe if I had money like that guy in the community that's 30 years into a business, successful business, right? Then I'd be happy. Then I'd be pretty much set. Like if, if my stocks had performed like that guy, and I'm not pointing to anybody, if my stocks had performed like that guy, I'd be content. All my problems would pretty much be gone. And what the Lord would have us see in all this is that it's an illusion. It is vulnerable 
It is all susceptible to damage, to decay, and theft. And say you're sitting here this morning and you, and you disagree. Just say you flat out disagree with this so far. You're more apt to believe that your wealth is sheltered well and very much reliable. All right. Listen, even if your wealth doesn't seem to let you down in the next 50 years, you are going to die. Guaranteed, you are going to die. And your wealth will get you nothing. Christopher Winans in his book, Malcolm Forbes, The Man Who Had Everything, tells of a motorcycle tour that Forbes took throughout Egypt in 1984 with his capitalist tool mo motorcycle team. So he went into King Tut's tomb, and after viewing the staggering tomb, burial tomb of King Tut, Malcolm Forbes seemed to be in a reflective mood. And as they were returning, one of his associates turned to Forbes and said, or Forbes turned to one of his associates, excuse me, and asked with all sincerity, do you think I'll be remembered after I die? Forbes is remembered. He's remembered as the man who coined the phrase, he who dies with the most toys wins. Right? That was the wisdom of Malcolm Forbes. In fact, that was his ambition. That's why he collected scores of motorcycles. That's why he would pay over a million dollars for a Fabergé egg. That's why he owned castles, hot air balloons, and countless other toys that he can no longer access. So you're going to die, right? We're going to return to dust, wind up in a coffin. Maybe you'll be cremated, right? Naked, you came into this world. Naked, you shall return. Nothing that seems very durable or permanent will prove to be that way at the point of death. So what do you have? We're not all Malcolm Forbes in this room. Right? Maybe you're thinking, well, that's some rich guy. He can, I can't afford it. Truth and uh, Fairness Act, I can't afford a castle. <laughs> like, I, just, I can't afford a castle. And, and most of us probably here can't, but what can we afford? How do we spend our money? What do we look forward to? What's on our agenda? What's on our minds? What's on our list of things that we want to get? Do we want, we have a house. Do we need to make house improvements? All right? I'm guilty. I'm guilty, right? Shopping trips. You look in your closet. What do you do? You need more. Need more. Need more. We, our car, we need a better car. Our house, we need a better house. It goes on and on and on. We're seeking. We're striving for things that seem to offer stability and durability, but they do not. They do not. So Jesus warns us not to store up that which will perish because your heart will go with your treasure either to corruption or to glory he says in verse 21 for where your treasure is there your heart will be also right god knows something about us does it read where your heart is there your treasure will be no, it reads where your treasure is. Because he knows that where we put our treasure, the things that we spend our money on, that is going to be a huge influence 
as to how we look at our heart, where our longings are, what our desires are, what our motivations are. If from the onset our motivations were for eternity, how we spend our money would be completely different. Right? Where our where our money is, whatever we put our hands to, our heart will follow, right? So it's all of our desires. It's what motivates us. It's the kind of person that we become. It's what we put our efforts into. All right, it's what drives us. So what is to be considered here? Greed, right? The sin of greed. If your heart is wrapped up in earthly treasures, you'll perish with it. And along the way, you'll increasingly become a dreadful person, a hated person, right? We all know this. Even the non-Christians know this. Somebody who makes it their aim to store up the things of this world, they become wicked. They become loathsome. They become less and less able to love people, right? Do any of you know somebody that, I mean, drive around Brainerd Lakes, not go up to someone's mansion and knock on the door. Chances are they're that type of person. They've made their aim to collect things in this world, and they're a wicked, loathsome person. <laughs> right? They don't love people because they use people. They use people to serve their God, which is what? Money. They are not the hero. They are not the hero, but greed is so subtle and so dangerous, right? Because the things that we can get with money seem to be good. They seem to be good. I won't read all the passages warning us about the lure of money, but know this, the scriptures overflow with such warnings. Just to consider the words of Jesus in the New Testament, the red letters, something like a quarter of Jesus' teaching is devoted to money in some manner, all right? Paul even says that the love of money is the root of all evil. Some translations say all kinds of evil, maybe in the ESV. But in 1 Timothy 6.10, it's not saying that. The literal translation of 1 Timothy 6.10, the literal translation in the Greek is the love of money is the root of all evil. That's how big a deal it is. Meaning there is something at the root of the sin of loving money that is a shared root of all sin. I think that root is the desire for autonomy from God. To be our own gods, to be our own protection, our own satisfaction, our own shield, our own reward, our own contentment. Meaning money is a very tempting fake God. A very tempting replacement God. It's easy to get ensnared by because money seems to offer that. If you embrace this illusion and you start to bury your heart, your longings in the storehouses of treasure, of real estate, of your home, of money in your accounts, gold, silver investments, whatever it may be. Maybe it's just your Netflix subscription. I don't know. But you bury your money in these storehouses of these earthly things, and you will perish with it. Right? I was just sitting at my house and looking at it the other day, 
I was saddened by it. I was saddened by it because a part of that, well, all of it will perish. But a part of my endeavors, my energy and effort and money is going right with it. It's going right with it. Part of me is perishing because of my sin of how I look at money, how I love money, how I desire the things of the world. And you will become a horrible person along the way. Unable to use your money to serve God and neighbor, but instead worship it like a God and so become a slave. You will use the people in your life to attain more treasure. Whether it's friends, neighbors, co-workers, employees, you'll use them to fill your wicked and idolatrous storehouses here on this earth. You will serve money. You will be enslaved to money. If you love money, you're also loving everything money can get. Right? That's why it's the root of all evil. Money is just a visible representation of your sin. Right? Money is just converted into the things that you're longing for that are not the things of heaven or eternity. It's just your wicked heart, your heart that doesn't know eternity, or you've dulled it, right? In that moment, you've dulled your heart not to know the things of eternity, but rather the things of this world, and so then your treasure follows. It's a visible representation. That's why all this matters, and that's why it comes up. Why money comes up so often in Jesus' teaching is because not only were we made to find our satisfaction in eternity and in God, we were also therefore to be free. Right? Because we are to be free. It is because God loves us, warrants against enslaving greed, because you're to be free. Free from this. If you are mastered by God, the thing you were made to be mastered by, then you will be free. Right? This is not a not whether but which issue. So let's look at verse 23. It says, um, excuse me, not 23. 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is simple. It's not whether you'll be a slave, but only which master you will be a slave of. God or money. You have to pick one or the other. You can't be a circle and a square at the same time. They're mutually exclusive, and there's no third option of not being mastered by anything. See, you will be mastered. It'll either be your money or it'll be God. Two options. So I want to ask a question here that maybe some of you are thinking. And that's, is wealth bad? Right? I've been pretty critical of money so far. Is wealth bad? What, what, the Proverbs says something about wealth, right? Right? I've read the Proverbs. It's not like the Proverbs says, oh, hey, don't get any. No. It says, rather, the pagans, you're going to get all their money. Right? Proverbs 13, 22. The sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Right? 
and following God's commands, we're going to get the sin of the pagans' money. It's coming to us. Right? The saving and investing and inheritance leaving and evil? No. You should be saving up, living wisely, leaving an inheritance. Proverbs 13, 22. The first part of that says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Right? But the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. A fool and his money are easily parted. And often it goes into where? The storehouses of the righteous. Right? The one who is diligent. The one who sows. The one who works hard. You know, he's not like the sluggard. Proverbs says that turns like a hinge on his bed. Or he's not the one that can barely lift his hand out of the bowl up to his mouth. He's not like the one that is in his basement saying, Oh, I can't go outside. There's a lion in the streets. Right? It's not the man who doesn't provide for his family. Paul says what? He is like a, um, I can't think of it. Infidel. Infidel, right? It's worse than an unbeliever, Paul says. If he doesn't provide for his family, denies the faith, and he's worse than an unbeliever, Paul says. So, the answer is no. Is wealth bad? No, wealth's not bad. Money is not evil. The love of money is evil. First Timothy 10 does not say money is evil. He says the love of money is the root of all evil. All right? If you properly obey Proverbs 13.22, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. If you properly obey that, you will not use your money to serve your whims and your pleasures, but you will make money your servant. <laughs> as you serve God. Money will become your servant as you seek to serve God. Right? If you're a fool and a sluggard, you'll probably be poor. And if you're rich, a fool and a sluggard, you'll probably be poor pretty soon. Right? You can make things that other people serve as gods, like money, serve God, and serve people. You will put a collar on your money, and you will lead it. You will be mastered by Christ, and then you'll be not, uh, you will not be mastered by idols. So make your money bend the knee to Christ. Bend your knee to money, and you'll be its slave. In fact, there's a way of being mastered by money while actually having very little of it. Right? Historically, this is true. If you look over the scope of history, most people haven't had a lot of money. Most people have actually just been baseline average, if not poor, and in poverty. So, but spend everything you have immediately on stuff, stuff you want, stuff you think will satisfy you, and you will be poor and a slave. You'll be poor and a slave. So if you think like, oh, I'm not, uh, I don't have any money, I don't, I don't have much. No. You can spend it wisely. You have money, right? If you have very little of it, you have to look at yourself and say, what, am, I, am I taking the worst option? <laughs> am I just a slave to my money and my whims and my pleasures? Is that what I'm seeking? 
How do we know if we are enslaved to money? How do I know if I am mastered by it? Jesus gives us one of the defining characteristics in verses 22 through 23. So some of you are saying, I get it. Lay, don't lay up treasures on earth. Lay up treasures in heaven, moth and rust. I get the whole thing. I've heard it a million times. But what is this in verses 22 through 23? Right in the middle, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And then the light in you is darkness. How great is the darkness? All right, what? A lot of this is... This is confusing. It doesn't seem to fit here because we're not first century Jews. All right, Jesus is employing here a very well-known cultural idiom that would have been clear to all who heard this. It's the idiom of the one with the bad eye. All right, Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 20, and we can understand what he's saying here. So we'll turn there and we'll read that because it does uh, give us some insight. So this is the owner of a vineyard who's looking for laborers to come and work. It says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So he goes out, first part of the day, finds a bunch of people standing around. I'll give you a denarius, a full day's wage. Come to my vineyard. They go. So after uh, agreeing oh, and going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever's right, I will give you. So they went, going out. And then going out again about the sixth and the ninth hour. So this happens a few more times. You find some workers, and they're sure like, sure, you'll give me a denarius for a half day's work. Absolutely. I'm in. So they go and work. Then toward the end of the day, the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. He said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, so they go. So they work an eighth day's work for a full day's wage. So at the end of the day, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius, so a full day's pay for a full day's work. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house. What were they? They were angry. <laughs> like, what? We've been out here a whole day under the heated sun, working, sweating. We get a denarius, and those guys, those guys get a denarius? They, they, they're hardly here. Okay, so what, what's happening here, and if we read on, what does the master say? He says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with, with what belongs to me? And then he says this, or do you begrudge my generosity? So that last sentence, translated, the translators of the ESV tried to make it a little easier for us to understand. So it says, begrudge my generosity. But literally in the Greek, the translation is, is your eye bad because I'm good? Do you have a bad eye? A bad eye in Jewish expression is someone who is bitter and envious, who looks on someone else's prospering, someone else's blessing, a gift given by God to someone else and says, that should be mine. 
you have a bad eye? Right? So deeply connected here in this parable is the idea of covetousness, right? You shall not covet what your neighbor has, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's donkey. This is the 10th commandment, right? You shall not covet. But it's actually a window into the soul of how we relate to money. Do you look at somebody that has a lot and hate them? Do you have a bad eye? Light is like truth. If you're filled with darkness, you have a bad eye. You can't see the truth of the reality or the nature of reality around you. You don't want to see it, right? When you have a bad eye, when you have an improper view on money and what it's to be used for, if you have this bad eye that he talks about, you hate the truth. You hate grace. You hate God's blessing. You hate it all. You have a bad eye. You're full of darkness. Right? Are you annoyed with people that have a lot? Are you just frustrated with them? Frustrated and just irritated by people that have things and money? Right? Somebody that actually went out and worked hard and sweat and got calluses and did a job and now they have something or Somebody's parents or grandparents gave them an inheritance, and you're like, that's, that's not fair. <laughs> you didn't do it. You didn't do it. It's a perfect thermometer of where you're at with money. This bad eye, this parable. Right? It's like, hey, by the way, you covet. By the way, you covet and you love money. You love money. You have a bad eye. You're full of darkness. This is what they would have understood this to mean. Is your eye bad because I'm good? So how do you know if you serve money? How do you know if you're mastered by money? Jesus answers this. Is your eye bad? So obedience to God in the ways of the kingdom is not Don't do what the pagans are doing, right? So when the Israelites went into the promised land, God just didn't say when they went in, they didn't like, stop sacrificing your children to Molech. It wasn't this this command not to do something. Like, God gives his people things to do. He gives us commands of what we are to do, right? He also said, when you rise, when you lay down, when you go out, when you come in, teach them about me. Teach them my ways. Tell them about how I took you out of slavery from Egypt. Tell them how I stretched out my hand over the waters and led you through. Tell them and be like a people who look like they worship a God who frees his people. Like That is what we're to do. We have this here, right? We have this here in Matthew. He, He goes on and he says, um, he says, do, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break and steal. So he's giving us something that we should do here. He doesn't say, don't, don't just do your earthly thing over here. No, he says, lay up treasures in heaven. Do this, right? Same thing he was doing with the Israelites. Don't do this, but do this. Don't lay up treasures on earth, but lay up treasures in heaven. But do this. All right? I think all of us know how to lay up treasures on earth. 
right? I think all of us get that. I don't think that's a hard thing to grasp. You know, uh, if I, we just obsess with piling up as much as we can. We just collect it and we want to hoard it. I was telling the kids in the class this morning, we're like a dragon, sits on our pile of gold, can't come here. Like, it's mine, it's mine. Like, you feel good when you go out and produce something. Or if wives, if you're at home with your kids, you feel good if something productive happens, right? Or then you have a bad day if you don't feel like something happens. Or if you don't earn uh, your money, if you didn't meet your goals, right? So this is how, uh, this is the economy but which we think day to day, all right? Or how about when uh, you get annoyed when people want your stuff, right? People ask you for your stuff and you love your stuff. It's your stuff. You worked for your stuff. They didn't work for your stuff. How dare they ask you for your stuff? Right? Just dragon, pile of treasure. How do we lay up treasures in heaven? How do we lay up treasures in heaven? I think the answer is good works. I think the answer is good works. Right? When you obey Christ and you seek the Father's blessing, you lay up treasures in heaven. So when you approach your money and your perishable material stuff, this is like the gospel. It means you can convert that perishable treasure into imperishable treasure by using it for the sake of God's kingdom. Not unlike what Christ did for you. You were once perishable, but because of Christ, you are now imperishable, eternal. Be generous with your money in the name of Christ, and you won't be its slave. Remember your heart? God did what? God set eternity in our hearts. So we're eternal. So relentlessly use perishable things here and now to serve God and your neighbor, right? How do we lay up treasures in heaven? God and neighbor. There you go. God and neighbor. You should have two columns in your budget. God, neighbor. Two columns. Everything you do with your money, the way you use it, the way you put it to good use to lay up treasure in heaven is for your God and for your neighbor. All right? That's why leaving an inheritance to your children's children in the name of Jesus doesn't contradict his teaching. So that's why wealth isn't bad, right? Who are you laying up treasure for? It's like the kind of treasure that's vulnerable to moth and rust. No, it's for, it's for someone else, right? So, like, you're to get a foothold. Like, we, our goal should make Cross Lake a Christian city, right? And judging by the number of people worshiping the Lord in Cross Lake city limits, we're probably at, like, what, 5%? Maybe. So we're winning. Right? That should be our goal. And then our goal should be to make Crow Wing County a Christian county. Right? And then go beyond that. And then we should make Minnesota a Christian state. Right? So that's our goal. What are we doing with our money? We should be putting a foothold in Cross Lake for our children. We should be setting a foothold for our children and their children 
to worship the Lord and use money and to know how to use money so it would go on from generation to generation to generation to generation. And one day, one day, God will have the glory. Cross Lake will be a Christian city because we set a foothold with our money here in what we do as a family of believers, right? If we're busy putting our money into things that will just burn up, It's not the teaching here that Jesus gives us, right? We'll know how to handle, they'll know how to handle it. Our children, bless your children. That's one thing you can do with your money is give your children good gifts. The Father gives you good gifts, right? God gives you good gifts. Give your children good gifts. That's one of the things you can do with your money to lay it up in heaven, to store treasures in heaven. If you want to inoculate yourself against the love of money, if you want to inoculate yourself against being a slave, give it away. Give your money away. Right? We are a slave of Christ, a bond servant of Christ. <laughs> he commands us to be generous. Give your money with a generous measure to serve people, to serve your household of faith. Like one of the things I strive to do it's like, invite someone over to your house, be hospitable, have them over for dinner, serve good food. Don't serve them macaroni and cheese and stale bread. What are we doing? We come here together for potluck. Bring good food. <laughs> Spend some money on some food. God and neighbor, one category, another category. Lay up treasures in heaven. We gather together Invest in one another. All right? Give your tithe. Set your money to the purpose of the kingdom. Right? And set a watch over your heart for envy, for covetousness, for greed, and for the love of money. Right? It's subtle, it's dangerous. It's crafty. It's a snare we all get trapped by. But we are to store up treasures in heaven. Amen, are we not? Work hard. Sweat. Get calluses. Push it downstream. Right? Money's not bad. Money's not a bad thing, you know? Have you ever thought about how monks can be monks? <laughs> monks take a vow of poverty. How can monks be monks? Someone else works. <laughs> right? Someone else has to work. We have to have money, right? We have to have things. We have to be able to own a home, feed our family, do the things. So money's not bad. We, d we don't want to be ascetics here. Like, we don't just have to take this vow of poverty. Like, oh, you know, I'm a little scared to get money. No. Convert your money. Put it to use. Put a collar on it. Make it serve God. That's how you, that's how you use money. That's how you don't, that's how sin, sin of loving money isn't in your realm because you're focused, you're focused on making your money serve the Lord. Right? What do we do though? What do, I mean, it's, 
I have things. I've, I've sinned in this area, right? And what do I do? I convince myself. I, I frost it with Christianity. I frost it with w- weird Bible verses <laughs> out of context, right? I'm like, oh, I got this in my life, and oh, it's so good. And I went overboard on a house I, I didn't need to spend money on or the excess money on. And then what do I say? Well, it's good because now I have something that I could... You know, uh, when I sell it, it's going to be uh, worth a lot more than it was if I didn't uh, do those things. What, is, what am I doing? I'm frosting it, right? I'm just convincing myself that this perishable thing is going to have some long-lasting effect. It's not. It's, go, it's going away. It's burning up. The moth, the rust, the thieves, they're waiting at the door for my stuff. Use your stuff for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you that your law is righteous. Thank you that your teaching is good and wholesome and pure. Lord, I pray that we would use the money that you bless us with, Father, to bless you, to bless others. God, I pray that we just do not despise this teaching this morning, that we don't rebuke it, Lord, or reject it. But help us, Lord, to go forth from here, Lord, and to build this church, to, build, to get a foothold in the community for your glory, God. Help us to use the treasures that you've given us for your kingdom, for heaven, for eternity. Lord, make the longing of our hearts you. Lord, we pray that we would be changed and we'd be conformed to your teaching this morning in your name. Amen.